Thanks, Roger and Tony. Uh, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Um, please keep your Bibles open. If you uh, want to kind of jot in notes down, then uh, on the back of your outline there is an outline of the talk. It, it's good to be back in Philippians, and I'm very grateful uh, to Seth for taking us through over the last couple of weeks, thinking a little bit about our partnership together uh, through our finances, through our wealth that God has given us to serve him. And so it's been a great uh, encouragement in the last couple of weeks. And uh, over the next few, we're going to be working through now the rest of Philippians. So let's, as we kick off today, let's pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your word, which is powerful to transform lives. We've seen it happen over and over again, and your word promises it. And so we ask, Lord God, this morning that you might encourage, strengthen, and build us up in our knowledge and understanding of you so that we might live to please you more and more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. Uh, One second he was peacefully perched in his cage. Uh, The next he was sucked in, washed up and blown over. And the problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean his cage uh, with a vacuum cleaner. She kind of removed the attachment in the end and she stuck the uh, end of the hose into the cage Uh, And at the moment, the the phone rang, and she turned to kind of pick up the phone, and as she did, she'd barely said hello when she kind of heard, (laughs) Chippy got sucked in. The bird's owner gasped. Uh, She put down the phone. She uh, turned off the vacuum cleaner. She'd opened up the bag, uh, and there was Chippy, still alive, but, of course, stunned and covered in dust. And because he was covered in dirt and dust, she grabbed him, raced to the bathroom, and turned on the tap and held Chippy under the running water. Then realising that uh, Chippy was soaked and shivering, she she did what any compassionate uh, bird owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer and blasted the pet with hot air. Poor old Chippy. He never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, um, the reporter who'd initially written about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she replied... Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. And can I say, I was reminded about a good old Chippy this week as I thought about the Apostle Paul uh, and his situation when he wrote this letter. It's got to be a segue here somewhere, surely. Paul might be um, excused for feeling a little sorry for himself. We kind of got a bit of a sense of it in the, uh, the kids' talk, didn't we? Uh, life was a little, could have been a little bit despairing. He could have been excused for wondering why God might be allowing his circumstances. The matter that Paul is talking about here in uh, this first chapter of Philippians, uh, in verse 12 particularly, is what has happened to him. Now, personally, I think what had happened to Paul would make for a great Netflix series. But what has happened to Paul began over two years earlier when he arrived at Jerusalem after one of his missionary trips. Uh, he wasn't there very long before he was falsely accused by his own people. He was uh, almost murdered by an angry mob of religious zealots. He was bound and tied up to be whipped before he even had a chance to plead his case. And he only actually escaped because he pleaded his Roman citizenship. His whole case was a mockery of justice. Uh, He was insulted. He was maliciously lied about. A plot was hatched to kill him. He was kept in prison even though no charges were laid against him and the officials knew that he could be released. In the end, he had to appeal to Caesar 
when the Roman officials actually wanted to send him back to his Jewish accusers, who already wanted him dead, to have his court case heard before them. Eventually he leaves for Rome by ship. A storm threatens his, his life. They're shipwrecked. Finally they arrive in Rome, and but he was arriving not the way that he'd hoped for. Paul had always wanted to go to Rome, but he came as a prisoner bound by chains without his freedom. He didn't seem much like an ambassador for Christ, the apostle to the Gentiles who'd come to proclaim salvation to the Romans. And so here's Paul now, he's, he's under house arrest, uh, he's chained to a guard or two guards, there was no guarantee what the outcome for his life would be. Uh, remember Nero was the emperor at the time in Rome and he was not a lover of Christians. And so death was a real possibility for innocent Paul. And it's actually from this point uh, that he writes his letter to the Philippian church, uh, and it's the letter that we have in front of us now. Now, I reckon you could excuse Paul for being a little worse for wear. Uh, In fact, you'd probably expect him to be that, wouldn't you? It wouldn't be that surprising to find him questioning what God was doing or what he wasn't doing. Surely God would look after his apostle. Now you might expect, or we might expect, that Paul would be depressed. But that's actually not what we get, is it? Have a look at verse 12 there in chapter 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now you wouldn't expect that chaining and imprisoning Jesus Christ's appointed messenger to proclaim the gospel, you wouldn't expect that would actually see it advance. You might actually expect it to go the other way. But now here's his point. His circumstances have really or actually served to advance the gospel. Now the Philippians uh, probably wondered what was going to happen with Paul in prison. Uh, What will happen if, if he's in prison? What is going to happen to the spread of the gospel? Now, the thing that grabbed my attention here uh, is that Paul actually doesn't tell them anything about the facts of his imprisonment. The only thing he mentions are the effects. See, he he actually doesn't describe at all the struggles of his situation, any anxieties he has, or even if he has any particular fears. There's there's actually no self-pity. There's no kind of questioning of God that is going on here. All he wants them to know are the effects of all that has happened to him. And so what is going on here? Well, what we see over and over in Philippians is that uh, being a Christian is all about living a life that is worthy of the gospel. We're going to see that in verse 27 of chapter 1. And and what lies behind that is is the need for a changed mindset. We're particularly going to be thinking about that a little bit more next week. But Christians are to set their minds on Christ, to know him, to love him. And they're to take on the mindset of Christ because our mindsets actually affect what we want in life. If our mind is set on Jesus, it will give us a different set of cares and concerns and desires. And so for Paul, the thing he most wants in life is happening. He wants to see the advance of the gospel. So that's what you increasingly want when your mind is set on Christ. And so the question for us is, what do we most want in life? 
And don't, don't brush that question off. What do you most want in life? If you're claiming to be a Christian, you actually need to honestly answer that question. And then you need to reflect on your cares and concerns and desires and see if they reflect what you say you most want in life. And here's the matter that matters to Paul. It's not the injustice or the extreme difficulty of his circumstances that matter to Paul. It's that the gospel advances, not in spite of his circumstances, but actually because of them. The gospel's not changed, even if, if Paul is chained. And he immediately goes on to tell them how it's advancing. Have a look there at verse 13. <clears throat> he says that because of what has happened to him, verse 13, that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Uh, the, the Roman imperial guard were an elite group of soldiers that um, I believe are numbered around about 9,000 men. And all of them, says Paul, had come to realise that he was imprisoned for being a Christian, not for a crime. Now, it's unlikely that all 9,000 men were chained to Paul at one time or another. It's actually more likely that his testimony and conversations with this captive audience that he had, men who had no choice but to be chained to him, had had such an impact that the news about him had spread like wildfire throughout the whole company. And Paul, we know, was allowed visitors, uh, and no doubt these guys listened in on many gospel conversations. And I reckon Paul would have been a fairly unique prisoner. His whole attitude would have been, I think, compelling, whether his attitude to being in chains or his genuine interest in those who were enforcing his captivity. Imagine, imagine being chained to Paul, probably for four hours at a time, to a man whose mind is set on Christ, whose main concern is the advance of the gospel. Uh, in, in a past life, I worked with a young guy named Danny. I think I've probably shared this story before, but after wrestling with whether the gospel was true for quite a while, God opened Danny's heart and he became a Christian. And right from the very beginning, Danny was a young guy with his mind set on Christ and a fierce desire to see the gospel advance. Uh, he wanted others to know the love of God that he'd come to know. And on one occasion, he'd moved to a new workplace and I went out to meet him for lunch and to read the Bible with him. And after lunch, we were heading back up to his office. Three of us got into the lift, uh, Danny, I, and a young unsuspecting woman. And, you know, normally there'd be that kind of awkward silence as you try to look at the walls uh, and not make any eye contact with anyone, but not Danny. Uh, he was like Paul, chained to an imperial guard. Uh, the girl was trapped. She couldn't get away. And so Danny starts subtly. Hi, I'm Danny. I was just wondering if you were a Christian. He was subtle. The girl, no. Uh, Danny, well, I've just become a Christian recently. It's the best thing I've ever done. Can I tell you about it? He didn't actually wait for an answer. He just started telling her. And by the time she got to her floor, he said, it's really nice to meet you. Here's my card. I'm just up on the next floor. If you'd ever like to find out more, just let me know. She smiled, thanked him, and got off the lift. I don't know what she did when she got out of the lift, but anyway. See, Danny didn't have as much time as the Apostle Paul did chained to his guards, but he did have his mind set on Christ, like Paul. And his main concern had become the advance of the gospel. 
A Christ-centred mindset leads inevitably to wanting Christ to be known. Maybe you're not a Christian. If that's you, I wonder what you think Christianity might be about. And it might actually surprise you, perhaps, that Christianity isn't about rules and religious practices. It's not about doing things or not doing things. Rather, Christianity is about a relationship. A relationship with the God who made this world and a God who loves this world so much that he sent his own son, Jesus, to save us. And so Christians are people who have their minds set on Jesus and who seek to make him known to others. It's actually this mindset that allows Paul, and in fact any Christian, not just to cope with opposition and persecution, but even to rejoice in it, as Paul does. See, Paul wants them to know that his imprisonment is an amazing thing. If it wasn't for his imprisonment, how else would he reach these people? See, the only reason Paul can have the attitude uh, that he does to his circumstances is because he's more concerned for the cause of Christ than he is for the cause of Paul. It's not saying that opposition and troubles are good, but that our desire should be for Jesus and to make him known. You see, that's, that's why as Christians we're involved in telling the gospel to people. And there are times when people will oppose us, be hostile even to us. We don't go looking for trouble. Our desire is simply to tell those around us the good news about Jesus. For most of us, we, we just need to take time to notice those people who are around us. We might be able to share the gospel with those people if we actually notice them. Notice people where we work. Friends at maybe uni or, or school. Notice the people that you have daily or weekly contact with. Maybe where you buy your petrol or the person who cleans your home, your hairdresser, parents at the school gate or on the edge of a sports field. Maybe your tutor or the person you sit next to on the bus or even the person you get into a lift with. Do you have your mind set on something in this world or on the world to come? So that's essentially what Paul was trying to teach the Philippians in verse 12. What had happened to him wasn't a tragedy. In fact, it actually served to advance the gospel. And so at one level, the gospel advances through the circumstances and witness of Paul himself. But there's also a second way that the gospel advances. See there in verse 14? It says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, Paul's unjust imprisonment has had perhaps the opposite effect to what might have been expected. Instead of going quiet in fear that they might end up in Paul's predicament, it actually gives his brothers and sisters courage to stand up and be counted for the truth of the gospel. Now, we've just seen a similar thing happen, haven't we, with the Andrew Thorburn scandal. I mean, Andrew, remember, is a board member of City on a Hill Church in Melbourne. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you probably saw it on the, in the news, he was appointed as CEO of uh, the Essendon AFL Football Club. But within 24 hours, he was actually forced to resign because he belonged to a church that believes what the Bible teaches. Even the premier of his state described him in despicable terms just because he belonged to that church. 
Now, you might think that would cause the Christians in that church, or in Victoria even, to put their heads down for fear that they may also lose their jobs or something else. But in a recent interview on the pastor's heart with one of the church leaders, she said that the opposite was true. Many of their church members had been emboldened to live and share their faith. It was the same in Philippi. The gospel isn't chained. It keeps going out through Paul's friends, his fellow Christians, his partners in the gospel. This is actually, I think, a very helpful comment that Paul makes here about how the gospel advances. I mean, his basic expectation is that the whole church will be out there speaking the gospel, talking about Jesus, explaining why they trust him. It's not just preachers or evangelists or missionaries. It's all of the brothers and sisters. And on this occasion, most have become bold enough to do it even more. If you read on, however, you'll notice that it's not all good news. Let's uh, pick it up there at verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. See, sadly, there were some who taught about Jesus, but with rather disturbing motives. Uh, Their purpose was to cause trouble for Paul in prison. Their motives were envy and rivalry, he says. Now, the idea here is of, of selfish ambition, or of self-seeking pursuit by unfair means. It appears that in preaching the gospel, they were rubbishing Paul somehow, perhaps to draw converts away from him, uh, to follow themselves. I don't think we can be absolutely sure of why, but they wanted to somehow cause Paul pain. Now, notice that these people are not false teachers. They're not proclaiming a false gospel. That's one thing Paul wouldn't have tolerated It's him they seem to be criticising and putting down. But it backfires. They try to afflict him in his imprisonment, but ironically, they actually further his interests. The gospel is proclaimed, and in that Paul rejoices. See, Paul's not concerned about himself. The basis of his joy is that the gospel is preached. Why? Well, the gospel is the power of God to save all who believe. And so the message is still powerful, whoever preaches it. Paul realises that he's not important or powerful. The message is. He can cope with personal attacks because he's a gospel man. He rejoices whenever the gospel advances and people are given new life. Well, The advance of the gospel is not the only reason Paul rejoices. Uh, there's another reason in verses 19 and 20. Look at this. Uh, So he says in verse 18, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. The other reason that Paul rejoices is because he fully expects to be vindicated by God, even if he isn't by the Roman courts. Now, the deliverance that Paul speaks of here is is not released from prison. 
I think it's clear from verse 20 that he expects to be delivered or vindicated whether he lives or dies. The reason that he believes God will vindicate him is that he confidently expects to stand firm in the gospel as he has always done, unashamed of Christ and unafraid of men, no matter whether he's put to death because of it or whether he's allowed to live. See, Paul's not being arrogant here. He's not claiming any superiority. His confidence comes because he knows that through the prayers of the Philippians and the spirit of Christ himself, it will enable him to stand firm and to bring Christ honour. You notice what Paul's not asking them to pray for. His driving concern is not to be released from prison. He's not even saying, if I have to die, pray that it will at least, will at least be relatively painless. He asks them to pray that he won't do anything that, will he, that he will be ashamed of. He wants courage so that Jesus Christ will be honoured by him, no matter what happens to him. He wants to hear Christ's blessed well done on the last day. That's what he wants them to pray for. What situation are you facing right now that is presenting you with an opportunity to honour Christ? It's right now that we must show how great Christ is. Never again will we have the chance to live for him through this moment, to please him in this circumstance, or to make him glad by trusting him in this difficulty. Now is our chance to honour Christ. Well, I can't imagine that there's any doubt about what Paul considers to be of utmost importance, but in case we still don't have it clear, these last few verses show us that for Paul, the important thing is to put the gospel first. Now, in an astonishing claim, I think, Paul puts the ultimate purpose of his life and death on centre stage. Listen, pick it up from verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, Paul lays down on the table the alternatives that confront him that is, it's either life or death. In reality, that's not different for any one of us. It's just that for Paul, it's very much a part of his immediate future. The amazing thing is that Paul thinks both of them are good options. In fact, as far as Paul is concerned, death is the better of the two options. Now, this isn't the, the death wish of a patient suffering seemingly unbearable torment with apparently no reason to want to go on living. See, Paul has plenty of reason to live, but he has even more reason to want to die. That sounds bizarre, doesn't it? But we, we need to understand why this is the case. Uh, it was Socrates who said, it's better to be dead and free from problems. What he means is that to live this life is bad because it's full of hardship. 
And so death is better because it brings relief. But that's not what Paul thinks. For Paul, life is full of fruitful labour. The Christian is never without worthwhile activity. But Paul understands that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, death is simply departing to be with Christ, of following Jesus into eternal life, into his glorious presence forever. They can't hurt Paul by killing him. For him, death is gain, the culmination of his life's purpose, the place where all his treasure is stored. A Christian is is certain of the fact that you will be with Christ forever. And again, that might sound arrogant, but that is actually simply what God offers. We know that Christ has died for us and will be forgiven and welcomed into God's eternal kingdom. That's why for the Christian to die is gain, because we've nothing to lose. We're not living for ourselves, we're living for Christ. And that is true freedom. Freedom from self, freedom from all danger, from rejection, from hatred and hurts of all kinds. Because a true Christian is one who lives for Christ. That's who a Christian is. I imagine we, we don't think that way normally. And I suspect because we've actually got too much invested here. Or because we're too committed to what we have here. If what you're living for is all about what you're achieving and accumulating here, then death would be a disaster. Everything you've worked for, everything you've invested in, every comfort or achievement or accolade you've gained on this earth, all is lost at death. And what's more, we all die. See, whatever takes us away from living for Christ robs both us and it robs the church. It robs us of the joy that Paul experienced even in the midst of suffering. And it robs the church of you. See, God has given each one of us as a gift to the church to build each other up, to help each other make progress, which is what Paul is concerned about in our Christian lives. Paul understood it very clearly, didn't he? The obvious alternative for Paul was to go on living. For him, that would mean fruitful labour. In other words, it meant continuing his ministry towards the Philippians and others for their growth in the gospel. Now notice once again how striking Paul's attitude to this whole situation is. He works through what he expects will be the outcome for him based on what will be best for them, for other believers. What he wants is to depart and to be with Christ, but he puts his own desires aside because he knows that he can be of more use to his fellow Christians if he lives for their progress and joy in the faith. Now, we we tend to make decisions based upon what we think will be best for us. Paul evaluates his alternatives here based on what he believes will be best for others. When we've got big decisions to make, how often do we even consider using Paul's criteria of working out what is best for the church, for your partners in the gospel. And we often make decisions for our lives based on our, our careers, uh, the lifestyles that we want, uh, proximity to family perhaps, the kind of culture we want to live in. But how often do you think about what would be best for your fellow Christians at church? 
And there are plenty of other decisions that we make that affect our ability to work with each other in advancing the gospel. Do you make decisions that advance other areas of your life but in turn limit your gospel work? That limit your partnership with your brothers and sisters here in church? See, Paul is trying to get the Philippians to give up their small ambitions for the world and deeply desire above all things to make Christ known. See, putting the gospel first is what shapes Paul's entire life. The goal of the gospel advancing overrides all else. It's the one matter that truly matters. His personal inconveniences, his sufferings, his imprisonment, all serve that end. So how about you? What matters to you? What are you living for? Your own comfort? Your reputation? Making money? Building a successful career? Getting married? Travel? Your grandchildren grow up? Retire early? Now, of course, none of those things are wrong in and of themselves, but if any of these matters are pushing the advance of the gospel to the side in terms of what matters for you or even out of existence, then that is a serious problem. Christians live for Christ. Paul lived for Christ and therefore he rejoiced in life even in his imprisonment. So here's that question again. What do you most want in life? And will you live for it? Let's pray. Our gracious God, you sent your own son into the world to give up his life to save ours. Help us to use ours to proclaim him in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue praying.